Once upon a time, he was the hottest filmmaker in Hollywood after making a string of highly successful films. He married a beautiful and talented singer-actress, and everything seemed to be going his way. When the studio heads began messing with his work, he became frustrated and depressed and decided to take out all his anger with a new film, one that would take 10 years to get made. The film was SOB and his name is Blake Edwards and I have his story on the 151st episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Hey, nice weather we've been having lately, right? A little rainy today, and uh, oh, I'm sorry if that sounded bad. I was just trying to make conversation. Anyway, I've got a busy weekend, so I don't have a lot of time for chit-chat. But before we get started, I want to warn you about today's episode. This episode contains no murder or violence. None of the people in this show practice black magic or fight for survival. There's no aliens or monsters. I do use one bad word, so that's something. The thing is, I'm a sucker for a good Hollywood story, and I'm also a sucker for films about the craziness of Hollywood. In a way, I find it fascinating for a filmmaker in Hollywood to make a film that rips Hollywood. It's biting the hand that feeds them. Yet artists often use their own art to express themselves, so when a filmmaker wants to express themselves about what goes on in Hollywood, what choice do they have? And why do the studios allow it, you might ask? I'll tell you why, and this is just my opinion. It's because the only thing that matters is the dollar. And if a filmmaker wants to make an anti-Hollywood film, fine, as long as it makes money. Anyway, let's get to this. Let's hear the story of a filmmaker who decided to show what goes on in Tinseltown. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. What if I'm right? If my vision is valid, Cully, not so crazy, a more acceptable insanity. Cully, that's all besides the point. Sane and miserable or insane and bursting with creative joy and happiness. That's the point, Cully. And in the final analysis, who says he's sane, therefore he should, or he's insane, therefore he shouldn't? Cully, come on. Even if I'm wrong, and I'm not Full of fire, Cully. I'm a blazing comet. Comets burn out, pal. But ah, my foes and all my friends, it gives a lovely light. In 1981, Blake Edwards released a movie called SOB, a film which he wrote and directed. It was a comic satire, a vicious, angry attack on Hollywood. When I saw this film as a 20-year-old young man, I loved every moment of it. 
It contained foul language, violence, silliness, nudity, including an orgy scene, and a chance to see the breasts of the star of such films as Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. It was a perfect film for a young man in 1981. The movie's about a producer, Felix Farmer, who's played by Richard Mulligan, who has just created a very expensive G-rated family film called Nightwind, starring his wife Sally Miles. She's an actress with a squeaky clean image known for her family films. The film is a big box office failure, so much so that Felix becomes extremely depressed. After Sally leaves him, he attempts to commit suicide over and over. After his fourth attempt, which occurs at a party at his home that is turned into an orgy, he gets the idea to reshoot some of the film and turn it from a family film into a softcore porn. The film contains all the stereotypes of Tinseltown. Like I said, I enjoyed this film back in 1981, and I still enjoy it today, but for other reasons. What I've learned since I first saw the film was that Blake Edwards didn't create this just because he thought it would be funny. It was a therapeutic exercise, a chance to purge angry emotions from a few incidents years before. The story begins in 1969 when he married actress Julie Andrews, but I think, before we get into that, a little bit about Blake. He was born William Blake Crump on July 26, 1922. His father abandoned the family before he was born. His stepfather, Jack McEdwards, was the son of J. Gordon Edwards, a director of silent films. By the time he was in his 20s, he was working as an actor. During an interview in the Village Voice in 1971, he talked of this period. I was working with the best directors, Ford, Weiler, Preminger, and I learned a lot from them. But I wasn't a very cooperative actor. I was a spunky, smart-assed kid. Maybe even then it was an indication that I wanted to give, not take, directions. He started out directing in television, first an episode of The Four Star Playhouse, then creating a TV show for Mickey Rooney. Edwards also created, wrote, and directed the 1959 TV series Peter Gunn. It was during this series he began working with composer Harry Mancini, who he would work with over and over again during his film career. His film career took off when he directed Operation Petticoat in 1959, an American World War II submarine comedy starring Cary Grant and Tony Curtis. He followed that up by the extremely successful Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1961, starring Audrey Hepburn and George Pappard. On a personal note, this is a film I find difficult to watch due to Mickey Rooney's racist depiction of a Japanese person, complete with false teeth and round glasses. Anyway, then came Days of Wine and Roses in 1962, starring Jack Lemmon and Lee Remick about two average Americans who succumb to alcoholism and attempt to deal with their problems. The year after Wine and Roses, Edwards would make a film that would dominate his work for the rest of his life. Originally intended as a vehicle for David Niven, who was to play a charming urban jewel thief, it would co-star Peter Houstonoff as a detective on his trail. When Houstonoff left the project, he was replaced with English comedian and actor Peter Sellers. The character, of course, was Inspector Jacques Clouseau, and the film was The Pink Panther. Mm-hmm. 
The story of Edward Sellers' love-hate relationship through seven Pink Panther films, the last two made after Sellers was dead, is an interesting story in itself and perhaps the subject of a future episode, but the Pink Panther was a huge success. That same year, Edwards was asked to direct a film called A Shot in the Dark based on a play. Edwards turned that into another Clouseau film. By now, Edwards was known as a hot young director in Hollywood. But in 1965, things began to turn a little. The film The Great Race, which was the most expensive comedy ever made to that point in Hollywood, was his next project. It went over budget, was two and a half hours long, and was not very well received by critics. Personally, I liked it, but uh, his next two films, Gun and The Party, were also box office disappointments. Blake Edwards was married to Patricia Walker since 1953, and they had two children together, including Jennifer Edwards, who appeared in SOB. Blake and Patricia divorced in 1967. Julie Andrews, the actress with the amazing four-octave voice, who had been acting since she was a child, was born on October 1, 1935. She was married to Tony Walton since 1959. He was an English set and costume designer. The same year Edwards divorced Patricia, Andrews divorced Tony, and both began therapy to cope. One morning, Edwards was driving into Beverly Hills and Andrews was driving out. They stopped at Sunset Boulevard, waiting for traffic when they noticed each other. This would happen over and over. And later, Edwards would say it was like a wonderful kind of Hollywood movie story. Eventually, Blake said hi. Andrews returned the greeting and then said, Are you going where I think you are? Where I've just been? Edwards said he was going to see his analyst, and she said she was just coming from hers. The two met and ended up falling in love. Edwards thought that Andrews' career had been pigeonholed into squeaky clean roles like Mary Poppins, and knew there was much more to her than that. Julie Andrews had been trying to shed her image for years, appearing in various films in the hopes of doing just that. Edwards began working on a new film he thought would do the trick. The film was called Darling Lily, a spy romance written by William Peter Blatty, who would go on to write The Exorcist, and Blake Edwards. Along with Julie Andrews, the film starred Rock Hudson and Jeremy Kemp. Set in World War I, Andrews plays a British performer who is actually a German spy. Production was plagued with problems right from the start. The first problem being that Edwards never thought of the film as a musical. But to Paramount, the studio producing the film, if your star is Julie Andrews, there better be musical numbers so they forced Edwards to add some. Also, Paramount wanted Edwards to shoot the film on location in Europe rather than in the studio. Edwards knew that was a problem due to the unpredictable weather. Edwards would later say, The weather in Ireland was abysmal. We finally decided to shoot whenever possible, but then had to wait for the weather to be consistent. The sun would come out and those poor English faces were boiling and burning. Edwards constantly begged to bring the film back into the studio. 
Charles Bladorn, the chairman of Golf and Western, who owned Paramount, became furious when he went to visit the set. It was a beautiful day, and he saw nothing happening. And when he found out that Edwards and Andrews were living in a castle and didn't invite him over for drinks, he was outraged. He wanted to pull the plug on the project, blaming Edwards for the ever-increasing budget. Edwards claimed that Robert Evans, the head of Paramount, was constantly lying to Bloodorn about the situation. He felt the executives at Paramount by this point were more worried about finding scapegoats for this project and all fingers pointed to Edwards and Andrews. Eventually, Edwards recalled, they would say things to me and deny saying them or they would not say things to me and claim they had said them. I became so paranoid that I was writing letters saying, for God's sake, get us out of here. Edwards also claimed that at one point, Bloodorn said to him, If this film's not a success, you're dead. You're hung. I mean, Edwards said, the lies, the deceit went on. I was finally so whipped, my self-esteem was at a low ebb. I was just torn to pieces. The film ended up going way over budget, and the head of Paramount, Robert Evans, blamed Edwards. The budget and how high it went over is a bit controversial. Edwards said the film was budgeted at $11 million and came in at $16.7. Robert Evans said the original budget was $6 million and cost $18 million. Some reports say it went as high as $25 million. Bob Evans said, It was the most flagrant misappropriation and waste of funds I've seen in my career. The primary reason the film went over budget was his drive to protect his lady. Queen Elizabeth was never treated as well. The extravagance was unbelievable. He was writing a love letter to his lady and Paramount was paying for it. On a personal note, I've read a lot about Robert Evans, including his autobiography. I tend not to believe Robert Evans. In fact, when Francis Ford Coppola was asked to make a sequel to The Godfather, his first condition was that Robert Evans would have nothing to do with it, that he wouldn't be allowed anywhere near the production. Anyway, at one point, Edwards asked Evans to step outside, telling him, You've done everything possible you could do to embarrass me and insult me, and you leave me no alternative but to act like a caveman. During this time... Andrews and Edwards were married. But then Darling Little was released to lukewarm reviews and was a huge box office failure, grossing only $5 million in the U.S. His following film, Wild Rovers, was taken away, re-edited, and the ending reshot without him. And it was also a failure. Things got worse with his next film, The Carey Treatment, which was secretly edited without his knowledge. When he found out, he quit after principal photography and attempted to have his name taken off the film. After trying his luck making a film in England, which didn't go well, he and Andrews were sick of the business and were ready for a change. Andrews suggested that they move to Switzerland. Edward said, I was really in a lot of pain. After my last experience, I said, Well, that's it. I'm not going to direct anymore. I'm going to get out of town. 
Either I'm not emotionally strong enough to handle it, or it's too heavy for anybody under these conditions. They moved in 1973 and adopted two kids and lived as a family. Blake's son and daughter would often visit. Edward said this restored Julie's soul as well as his own. Andrew said of Blake that he wrote like crazy, writing out his demons. He wrote two personal scripts, one based on his own midlife crisis that would become the Dudley Moore Boderic comedy 10, and another one about his recent struggles in the film business, which he titled SOB, which stands for Standard Operational Bullshit. He had two good scripts, but the problem, of course, was that there was no Hollywood studio that was going to give him money to make the films that he wanted to make. What he needed was a hit film or two to build up his clout, and the best thing he figured was to bring back one of his most successful characters. And, as luck would have it, Peter Sellers was having his own troubles. All his recent films had bombed, some not even released into theaters. It was the perfect time in both Edwards and Sellers' career to bring back Inspector Jacques Clouseau in The Return of the Pink Panther. Yet, since both their careers were at an all-time low, United Artists had no interest in making another Pink Panther film. So they made it independently for about $2.5 million, with both Edwards and Sellers taking a percentage of the profits rather than a salary. This turned out to be great for both of them as the film grossed $100 million worldwide. Although the relationship between the two was usually a difficult one, the success of The Return of the Pink Panther led to an almost immediate fourth film, The Pink Panther Strikes Again, and then a fifth film, The Revenge of the Pink Panther. Revenge would be the last time Sellers would work on a new Pink Panther film. A sixth film was being planned called The Romance of the Pink Panther when Peter Sellers passed away. But by now, Edwards was back and able to make one of the films he had written in Switzerland, one based on his midlife crisis. Ten, starring Dudley Moore, Julie Andrews, Robert Weber, and newcomer Bo Derrick, became the surprise hit of 1979. Considered a trend-setting film at the time, it was one of the year's biggest box office hits and made superstars out of Moore and Derrick. With a budget of $7 million, it took over $74 million at the box office. Now was the time for Blake to say what he needed to say about the film industry. It was time to make that film he wrote 10 years before about Hollywood. A film that would exercise him of all his anger and frustrations that had built up during Darling Little in 1970 and the other films that followed. It would be his most personal film yet. Of course, no one can sue us, said Tony Adams, the film's co-producer. If they did, they'd be admitting that the portrayals recognizably depicted them, and no one's pride could risk that. You try, but ultimately you can't make sense out of nonsense, Blake Edwards said. That's why the only way for me to approach dramatizing the insanity of Hollywood was to make a satire. I wanted to communicate not only the sense of the industry's craziness, but also of my own, since I'm part of it. For Julie Andrews, she said that when she first realized that Blake was actually going to make the film, she was terrified. But, she said, I welcomed the opportunity to take off and fly a bit. 
and take off she did, doing her first, and as far as I know, her only topless scene, which was heavily promoted in the film's advertising. SOB is not a direct autobiographical film, but a parody of Hollywood based on the real experiences of Blake Edwards and how the town functioned in his eyes. One would assume that if the film was truly autobiographical, there would have been a character based on Blake Edwards, but there doesn't seem to be. The main character, Felix Farmer, the producer of the failed Nightwind, played by Richard Mulligan, might be, I guess, but I don't know. The director, Tim Cully, played by William Holden, is definitely not Edwards, as he shows no passion for his work. In fact, I saw an interview with Edwards in which he said, There is nobody in the film, there is no character in the film, that are precisely anybody else. When asked if Robert Vaughn's character is supposed to be Robert Evans, Blake answered, No comment. Julie Andrews' character, actress Sally Miles, is definitely based on the actress herself. Like Julie Andrews, Sally Miles is known for playing Disney-esque type roles. Her agent, Eva Brown, played by Shelley Winters, says to Sally at one point as she's contemplating a divorce from her husband Felix, You know this town, sweetie. You could smoke dope and end up going steady with your Afghan and you're just one of the gang. But you, you're Peter Pan! If there's one part of the film I find a tad bit annoying is that Edwards seems to put a little too much importance on the revealing of his wife's breasts. To Julie Andrews herself, it was no big deal. After all, she had ten years to prepare for it. Both hoped that this role would change the public's view of Andrews, but in reality it didn't. Perhaps that's because by now, an actress doing nudity has become the norm, not the exception. One highlight of the film is Robert Preston, who plays a quack doctor, whom Blake says is based on a real person. Preston is hilarious in this film. There's a scene in the film which Felix Farmer and Robert Vaughn get into a shouting match over who the stockholders will blame for Nightwind's failure and the money spent on it. Should the person who spent the money or the person who approved the spending of the money be the one that's at fault? Apparently, this is based on a real conversation he had that took place during Darlene Lily. The film came out in 1981 to mixed reviews and didn't do all that well at the box office. The opinions of this film was so varied that the screenplay was both nominated for a Writers Guild of America Award for Best Comedy, written directly for the screen, and a Razzie Award for the Worst Screenplay. It was also nominated for a Razzie for Worst Director and a Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. But I don't think that mattered. Blake got a lot of things off his chest, and the next year he went on to make one of his best films, Victor Victoria, in which Julie Andrews plays a woman pretending to be a man who is pretending to be a woman. And I'm sorry to say, but after all this, if you're like me, and this is probably unfair of me, when you look at Julie Andrews, you can't help but think Mary Poppins. Thanks, Tully! That's the answer! You want America's G-rated sweetheart to appear in the nude? Why not? Starring Julie Andrews, as you've never seen her before. Topless. William Holden as the director. 
hockey uniform to keep an orgy organized. Richard Mulligan as the producer. I must warn you, my hands are lethal weapons. Larry Hagman as the studio exec. Robert Vaughn as the studio head. Shelley Winters as the agent. Loretta Swit as the gossip columnist. Robert Weber as the press agent. Look, we gotta sit down, get our story straight, let me handle it. Robert Preston as the doctor. Can she work? Is Batman a transvestite? Who knows? Blake Edwards, S.O.B. The motion picture that exposes America's sweetheart just for laughs. Alex, so you never do another picture in this town? As long as you live! S.O.B. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A few things before I go. You know, as I was writing this, I was thinking... When Blake Edwards' career starts down that path that leads him to Switzerland, it's easy to blame Hollywood executives in the studio, but I tend to think in a lot of these situations, it's a, it's a combination of, of both, you know? You have so much success for so long, you might get a little big-headed, and, and you start thinking that you can do anything and make anything, and it'll be successful, and... And then after a few failures, the studio starts to panic. I mean, they're putting millions of dollars into these productions. And like I said, it's easy to, to, to rip these men, but you have to understand that a couple of big failures and they're out of a job. When you're putting in $5, 10 $15 million into a film and it totally fails, the stockholders aren't going to be too happy. But then there's also the other side. You're hiring this man to make a film, and I think history shows that the studio head's involvement usually doesn't work out so well. Or maybe not. Maybe there's a lot of cases where the studio head's involvement made the film better, and we just don't hear about it. Because who's going to complain when a film's actually really successful? You know, on a personal note, that's why I like little indie films. You know, I like to search out films that a lot of people don't actually see where you know the filmmaker is making what he really wants to make, good or bad. Anyway, I wanted to point out one reason I decided to do this story today, and it's a story I've been thinking about doing for a while, was because I have, like I said, a busy weekend, and this one was pretty simple for me to write because I knew a lot of it already, and I, for the most part I just had to look up some of the facts and make sure I had the quotes right. But uh, I think next week I'm going to have a little more of a... hmm compelling story. Anyway, why don't we get to the ending credits? You know, Psycon could use some money to help keep these podcasts going. You know it. I've mentioned it before. Just go to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and find out how you can become a sponsor of these shows. Just look for the Patreon link at the top. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to a website and check out a few of our other shows? I talk about them all the time. There's a, a wide range of subjects you can find in there. Some pretty good stuff. They're all available at Psycon.fm, including older Coffee with Jeff episodes. You know, you can email me for any reason. My email address is coffeewithjeff, all one word, at gmail.com. Coffee with Jeff is also my name on Twitter, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. And you know, your story ideas are always welcome. 
If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. It's really simple to do and it really helps me out big time. Remember, links to all the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. And to my wife of, well, it's 34 years because today is our anniversary together. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah.